And thanks for joining us now on KVCR4 KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. Susan, looks like I'm losing. I'm losing my mind. I'm wasting my time. I'm joined once again now by Dennis Tufano, former lead and original member of The Buckinghams. Later in the program, we'll hear about his work with Bernie Taupin, known mostly for his collaborations with Elton John. We'll also touch on some TV and film work. But to start, Dennis on the Buckingham's tune, Susan. A beautiful tune. Up until right at the 92nd mark, there's a series of orchestral bangs and crashes and crescendos and then... Technically speaking, we'd call this, quote, a really weird break. Yeah. Very reminiscent of the Beatles, <laughs> really. A day in the life. Yeah. Was that the source for this interruption, for lack of a better way of saying it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was definitely an interruption. Uh, <laughs> when we recorded the basic track, our producer, who actually went on to produce Chicago also, he said, we're going to put a click track for like 32 bars. He says, and I got an idea for something you guys are going to love. <laughs> we said, really? You know, you're our producer. You're giving us hit records. Of course. Okay, we believe you. And we went on. We finished that with that big space in there, just click track. And then, of course, the end of it was the love, love acapella part. <laughs> and so we're on the road in New York someplace. And they send us the mix from the Susan single. And we sat down, we were really excited. We sat down and played. It was just before a gig. We were at the hotel. And phew. Got to that part and we actually stopped it. Took the needle off the record. We said, wait a second, this is this this can't be right. They they gave us something wrong here. This is not the right copy. So we put it on again and we listened to it and it did go right back into the singing <laughs> and ended. We went Oh my God, this is horrible. <laughs> and we were freaked out. Now, most of the DJs, about 99.9% of them, put it on a cart and cut that section out. Oh, good for them. <laughs> and slammed it together, which is how we always did the song anyway. And it was a producer's dream to try to be a day in the life like the Beatles, you know? Yeah. And it was not. It was like it was the wrong song. It was, it was yeah. a love song that turned into a, a train wreck. And so, uh, yeah, they all turned it off and they only played the regular record. I get a couple of people every once in a while saying, oh, I really like that. That was a crazy part, real psychedelic. I said, well, you better change your drugs. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't that good. That was, you know, one of the long list of disappointments that you've run into in the music business. Of those first big, oh, I don't know, five or six or seven songs, the first big charters, were there any of those that you questioned? Like, we're going to go nowhere with this, and then, boom, there it goes, another bullet. Uh, no, you know, we were fortunate enough to have James Holvey, who was the writer of Kind of a Drag, Don't You Care, Susan, and Hey Baby. Oh, all of them. Yeah, so what happened was, is he heard us at a show in Chicago and said, you know, well, you guys sound really good, and we said, well, you have any songs? Because we knew he wrote, he was a guitar player in a great band called The Mob. They were a show band. They were horns. They played Vegas all the time, opened up for all the big names. And so he gave us this little three-inch tape, had kind of a drag on it, with him singing and playing an acoustic guitar. So he gave us that, and he said, see what you can do with this. And we said, okay, and we did. And uh, so it all worked out. And then 
as soon as that became a hit, he immediately got in touch with us and said, I've got another song for you. That was Don't You Care. Uh-huh. And then after Don't You Care, he gave us Hey Baby and Susan. And what's weird about it is that all those songs are written about Susan. Oh, all of them. All of them. Yeah, it's inspired the whole heartbreak medley that he gave us. And it's just got that same theme to it, which is, you hurt me, but I still love you. And that seemed to resonate big time with everybody. You know, there's hurt and heartbreak, but boy, there's still love there. And Hey Baby, They're Playing Our Song was like that. Let's get back together, you know. All the songs were great, and they were easy to sing. I mean, they were like a real letter Mm -hmm. to your loved ones. So for me, it was like I was excited as a singer to get this original material, and I'd be the first one to sing it. It was great. So we were very, very lucky to have Jim be consistent with us. And the thing about Susan you mentioned, too, is I love the song Susan. I just don't like that insert. Absolutely. The interruption, as you put me. That's a good one. The interruption. (laughs) But Susan is one of my favorite songs because now at my age, I can still sing those songs from my heart. They're not kiddie stuff. It's kind of general over the whole population goes through these feelings. And when I'm up there singing, I'm like, I don't feel like I'm singing a 19-year-old's record. I feel like I'm really up there saying these words again. It's really gratifying. I mean, because back in the day, I thought when I was in my 70s, I'd just not be singing anymore. I'd be, you know, opening a pizza place or something, (laughs) which I still may do. But (laughs) but yeah, that was the good thing about all those records is there was a close bond between the writer and us. And he was right. Every time he gave us a song, we were excited to do it. not written and given to you the Buckinghams first, I'll Go Crazy. This yeah. was first a James Brown tune, and with him, of course, yeah. I naturally expected something more of a hard funk and soul-driven, but it was really more of a doo-wop kind of thing with his take on yeah. it. Now, this yeah. is a song that makes me want to ask about arrangements. You gotta live for yourself, for yourself and nobody else. You gotta live for yourself, for yourself and nobody else. Who did the arrangements for the Buckinghams take on this? Well, on the first album, the Kind of a Drag album, which was Kind of a Drag, I'll Go Crazy, those are the singles released, was a guy named Frank Tyshinsky. He was a trombone player, still is, trombone player in Chicago. And he was called in by the other producer we had then called Dan Bellock, who was a big band leader in Chicago. We used to work at his ballroom early on, so he knew what we were about. But Frank Tashinsky did all the kind of a drag. He did I'll Go Crazy and Oh Yeah, I Call Your Name, a Beatles song. It's like almost every time we recorded an album, we'd put a Beatles song on it. Right, kind of. Because it was just, you had to. It was the law. Yeah. <laughs> so and we always had fun to do that. But Frank did a great job on the horns because it's very, very interesting. And he put a little bit more jazz into the I'll Go Crazy thing because we were mostly playing ballrooms. And we were rehearsing one day, and I had been out doing my once-a-week record store hunt. Mm-hmm. And I pulled out this Live at the Apollo by James Brown. And I went, wow, I, thought, I love this. It's live. So I took it home, and I played it. And all I could play for the next week 
was I'll Go Crazy. Mm. And, uh, his version is slower, yeah. funkier. So I brought the record into the rehearsal. I said, guys, we got to learn this song. It's pretty straight ahead. Let's do it. It's going to be a great song. And sure enough, we did it at dances, and that's probably why it became a regional hit, because they had already heard us do it. And I still do it today. Okay. Yeah, people love it. It's always amazing to me that we were able to kind of make the crossover to a heavily based R&B tune without getting scandalized. Mm. <laughs> because there was okay, a lot yeah. of genre people that didn't want records to cross over anywhere. But it's a pretty interesting cut. Still today, it works. I use it as an encore sometimes. Oh, good. People think of you as a singer, but some know you as a harmonicist as well. And on our previous interview, you told me all about the fact that really your ability on the harmonica stems from you snooping in your dad's drawer, borrowing his <laughs> yeah. harmonica, then him yeah. giving you that harmonica. But now here's the thing that I never asked, and I kind of regret this, because I know it was the harmonica that got you into the musicians' union. Was it yeah. by chance that harmonica, the one that he gave you? Oh, uh, you know, that's a good question. I probably was, because I didn't wow. buy any harmonicas. Matter of fact, it was only in one key. I think it was the key of C. So anytime we were rehearsing, I'd say, well, let's do this in C. <laughs> so I can play this harmonica. But then I realized that there was a wealth of harmonicas out there that were in different keys. But, you know, you're right. I don't remember shopping that much for harmonicas. But, yeah, I used them on the first album. Uh, Lottie Miss Claudie, we covered the Drifter song, and I played harmonica in that on the first record. Yeah, you know, that's true. I, uh, wow, you're giving me kind of like a little goosebump thing. Oh, now. cool. Like, uh, I, I think that that definitely was that harmonica because I never bought one myself until later. A slight side note, but this is connected with snooping in your dad's drawer. Remind <laughs> us, just because this is your dad's sense of humor, and this is how you told me about it the yeah. first time. Tell me about that wonderful silver book with that very enticing title. <laughs> Famous nudes. Yeah. <laughs> this little book, black with a silver binding on it and everything. And as I was looking at the harmonica, I saw that book and I went, well, I could just open it up and just check it out. You know? <laughs> when I opened it up, I got shocked. There was a battery in it. It was a joke book. You know, they'd say, hey, you want to see some famous nudes? And hand it to somebody, and they hold it in their hand. When they open it, they get shocked. And that's what happened to me. I almost, I almost fell off the chair I was standing on. I didn't know then that adults know exactly where they put things. Right. I didn't know that. And so he, he noticed that things were not put back the same way. Uh, probably from the electric shock I got, I probably, probably moved things around. But yeah, that was fun. It was a good indication that my dad was open to see what I was going to evolve into. Nice. There, there was no like punishment. He thought it was interesting that my interest went to that. And so he just kind of supported it. And he played saxophone, my father, too. Oh, so cool. I heard music all the time in the house. So, you know, I remember growing up listening to 78s of all the standards. Gotcha. You know, the okay. early Tony Bennett's and all that. I definitely have a little module in me that covers a lot of genres because of that. Wow. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR. I'm David Fleming in conversation with Dennis Tufano, part of the lineup on the Diamond Ring and Devil Tour, along with Gary Lewis, Mitch Ryder, The Classics Four, and The Circle. That's August 20th in San Bernardino. AffordableMusicProductions.com for more. To go into this next part now, not the music of the Buckinghams, or even Dennis Tufano on vocals, 
but rather some cuts from Bernie Taupin. Gigi liked the book on Jackie O, though I knew she had some trouble with the words it never showed. She never dropped her guard Under pressure she preferred Like all her girls work the bars To be a lady in the fine sense Not your traditional elegance A parry match And chic expense We'll get to some very song-specific questions about He Who Rides the Tiger and Last Stand uh-huh. in Open Country, but to go into it, please tell me about how you ended up working with Bernie Taupin. To put this out there, for those who don't know, if Elton John had any huge hits, it was probably the collaboration of Bernie Taupin and Elton John. That's a generalized statement, but that's a good way to let people no, know who don't know his name. Yeah. So how yeah. did you end up yeah, with Taupin? Well, make a short story long. <laughs> Please. Uh, like I said, in the 70s, I was on Lou Adler's label, Ode Records. We became good friends, and he produced a couple of our records and everything. And So I had a friend in California then, Lou Adler. And he owned this little private club above the Roxy Theater on Sunset called On the Rocks. It's a private club, but anytime you want to go up there, carte blanche, just go up there and hang out if you want and have a beer, whatever. I said, oh, great, thank you. So I went up there a couple of times and met some people and stuff. And one night, this girl comes in who I knew from Chicago, and she was with Bernie Taupin. And she introduced me to him. We talked just slightly and stuff, and then that was it. And I was like, whoa, Bernie Taupin. I knew who he was, you know. And he was very quiet, very nice guy. And I was up there about a couple of months later, and he comes in, sits down at the bar with me, and we're just talking about stuff. And he said, well, what do you do during the day? <laughs> and I said, well, I said, I'm an actor. And I said, and I'm doing some demos right now with Tom Scott. And he goes, oh, he said, so you sing? And I said, yeah, I write songs and I sing. He goes, well, he says, I'm thinking of doing an album on my own. He says, there are all songs that are kind of autobiographical. And they're not songs that I would give to Elton. They're not the right kind of lyric. And story-wise, he said, everybody's been telling me to get, you know, this famous guy, that famous guy. I'm just looking for someone that has a fresh sound and something different. So I'm not just riding on the back of some other guy. He said, well, can I hear your demos? I sent him the demos. And he called me back and he said, look at it. He said, come on over. Let's talk to you about uh, some of the songs. So I went over to his house and he gave me one song, one of the nicest songs on the album too, it's called Horse of Paris. Oh yeah. And it's a long song, there's like a whole bunch of lyrics to it, I couldn't believe it, there were two legal sheets with no repeats. <laughs> and I went, wait a second, these aren't songs, these are poems, you know, I mean he's a poet, these are like just unbelievable verse here. So I worked on half the song, and I thought I had something really good. And I called him and said, look at it. I said, this is a very long song. I don't want to be going in the wrong direction. Can I come over and play you what I already have? So I went over there, took my guitar, my little pig nose amplifier. I sat down, and I was ready to go. And he gets up from behind his desk, and he sits cross-legged right in front of me with his head down. And I'm playing. And, I'm, you know, it's Bernie Taupin. I don't know what I'm doing there, really. And, he's, and I'm playing the song and playing the song. And I got to the part where we went to a bridge and I stopped and I said, well, that's what I got so far. And he lifted his head up and he went, that's exactly it. And I went, really? He goes, yes. And he got up and he grabbed the folder he had 
and pulled out like 12 lyric sheets. And we sat down and we went through each lyric sheet and he told me what kind of genre he wanted. It was hard rock, like English rock, whatever way he wanted to go, ballad and this and that. So we worked it out and sure, we put it together and got it done. We even had Elton sing backgrounds on one of the songs, which was really kind of cool. He came in and tripled his voice doing backgrounds. I actually had the honor and, and the scary moment of pushing on the button in the studio and saying, Elton, could you try that one more time? <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> <laughs> Who does that? And uh, he was beautiful to work with, too. He was just very professional, quiet, liked the song, and then took off, you know. So, yeah, so Bernie and I, after that album, well, we were friends for a long time, still friends, you know. I mean, for 18 years, I actually became part of his family, in a sense. I was an usher at his wedding, one of his weddings. Oh, wow. He's an amazing guy. Uh, he is definitely the brown dirt cowboy. Yeah, oh, nice. Uh, oh, beautiful reference. Yeah, My favorite album right there. And he's really that guy. His ranch in Northern California, he raised cutting horses. Mm. And he's a rider. He did rodeos in Santa Barbara and stuff like that in Texas. He's definitely the brown dirt cowboy. Funny guy. He's a good guy. We actually worked together again in the 90s for a project called Farm Dogs. We all co-wrote it. It was two guys, great guitar players, Jim Cregan from the Rod Stewart Band, and also Robin LeMessurier, another English great guitar player who played with Johnny Halliday and a bunch of other people. Great, great players. We all sat around in a circle and did this Rootsy album called Farm Dogs. And that was also a great experience. Strangely enough, you know, neither of those albums really became highly successful because Bernie sang on those albums, you know, and I tried to write melodies that he could do because he's not really a trained singer, but his style is very much, you know, almost narrative, but then he can really sing rock and roll too, you know, but I don't think people ever thought about him as a singer, so nobody really got into that. But those records are good records. I mean, I'm still proud of doing them, even though people used to tell me while we were recording the first album, they said, you wrote all the music for these songs on the album? I said, yeah. You better go house hunting now, because you're going to make a lot of money. Beautiful. <laughs> that didn't happen. That didn't happen. <laughs> but like I said, I was still proud to have the associations. My life has been very blessed in that sense. I've always been kind of open to the next thing. I've never like closed down so much and thought, oh, this is horrible, this business. I just kept moving to the next thing. And that always gave me a pass to meet somebody new and to go further with what I do. So, oh, cool. Yeah. With your work with Bernie Taupin, you know, so he was providing the lyrics, just like his relationship with Elton, he was doing the lyrics, you were doing the music. Right. So with the first one then, with the He Who Rides the Tiger, were you also then the one who picked the musicians to play on the album? No. Okay. Uh, he had a couple of musicians already lined up. And then the producer, Umberto Gatica, who was one of the top engineer producers in town at the time, he heard the songs and really liked them. And he then hired guys he thought would be fitting okay. for each song. It was like the modern day wrecking crew, really. It was right. all the, the hot guys that were playing, you know, guys from Toto and yeah. just all kinds of people up there playing. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it's Toto that actually made me ask this specifically. Those were the names that always catch me first. Steve Lukather, Jeff Picaro, and David Hungate on this album. Right. That would have been half of Toto at this point in that band's history. Yeah, sometimes somebody played on top of another guy, and then they... It was a unique experience watching these guys work. You went east to New York And I stayed in L.A. You 
piano as well and and I'm asking because of the song Love subtitled The Barren Desert. Yes. I don't know if this is maybe too esoteric or but I'm wondering what had you go in the direction then of this piano chord oh, repetition instead of maybe some of the finger picking that you were doing on some of the other type of songs. Right. It was just a song that I tried it, you know, both ways, guitar and piano and stuff, and it just lent itself to the piano attack. You know, the piano has a different attack than the guitar, has a much fuller bass to it. So I just started playing. I always start things on the guitar, but then all of a sudden I went, there's something wrong with this. And I sat down at the piano and played the same chords, and I went, oh, wait a second. This makes a better flow into the next part of the song. And that, right. and Love the Barren Desert, that's the song that Elton sings on. So This is also one that has several places where it could go back to a chorus, but then continues to build and build. And right. was this uh, one right. of those that you and Toppin had talked about, or was this a case of, man, how do I oh, make no, this that, flow yeah, for its work? It's all really uh, motivated by his lyrics. It's like, where you go with the lyrics? How can you make the story happen without a traditional format? Yes. Because three or four of the songs on there definitely are not traditional format. There's like longer passages and different holes in it. It was really uh, interesting to make because it wasn't typical. And I think that was part of the joy of it all. I don't know where or when I read this, but with Toppin and Elton John, I understand that, yeah, it was really just long prose. Then it was Elton yeah. who found where the breakpoint is. And so mm-hmm. this is, again, a question about taking Toppin's words and putting it to music. This one actually feels like it was written out with a chorus in mind. Or with this song and maybe others from Bernie, you have to find a clump of lines which you can come back to to serve as a chorus, so you're taking it yeah, out of well, place well, but then yeah. moving it? Especially on that project, Jim Cregan and Robin Missouri are very, very gifted songwriters, and Bernie's rule was that we come up to the ranch and we're going to record in this little studio, and we don't get the lyrics until we all sit down together in a circle, and then he reads the lyrics to us, you know, usually it would be Jim Cregan that would come up with something moody and that fit the lyrics, and then it would build from there, and then we would all kind of go back and forth and talk. And then him and Robin, who are great guitar players, would start to come up with the form, and then we would work from there. But it definitely has a lot to do with his lyrics. And I think the lyrics on the Farm Dogs project was a little less lengthy than the first album. But they're all, again, knowing him for all these years, those songs were all autobiographical. You know, it's like I even told him once, I said, hey, I've heard you say this before. And he draws from just everyday life, too. I mean, like, and he gets these amazing moments of creativity. He's quite an artist, quite an artist.
With this gig in San Bernardino coming up and others like this, you know, I know that there's a wonderful reunion aspect to it, returning to the stage with folks that you've shared the bill with in the past, you know, probably multiple yeah. times. These days, Dennis, can you recall a time when you, quote, finally got to share the bill with someone you've wanted to do for about 56 years now? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm probably too many to count. Everybody on this show that's coming up with Gary Lewis, The Circle, Classics Four, Mitch Ryder. I mean, I've worked with all these people before. As a matter of fact, in San Bernardino, the Playboys are going to be my backing band. Oh, cool. Yeah, because we've worked, every time I've worked with Gary before, it was always uh, Gary and me, and his band is super good. And they sing and play my stuff like they owned it. And that's going to be fun. Mitch Ryder, I've worked all over the place with, Canada, everywhere. He's quite the character. He's one of those living legends. Almost every gig I have, there's someone on the show that I stand in the wings and just go, wow. And a lot of them are older than me. And some of them call me, hey, kid. Sounded pretty good tonight. And I go, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're calling me a goat. I don't know. But... Oh, yeah. yeah. I think every time I work, there's somebody, like you said, that just blows me away. A lot of people now from our era have so much fun because we're not looking at the charts when we come home. Mm. We're just going out and playing the music and having a good time. And we get a chance to talk to each other. In the old days, we never had a chance to do that. Everybody was rushed off to another place. So it's really kind of fun, especially if we do cruises. And you're locked on the boat for like eight, nine days. Oh, yeah. and you really get to hang out. And you end up sitting in with everybody that's on the show. And you just have a great time playing music. Who could ask for anything more? It's great. For this edition of KBC Arts, it's been conversation with Dennis Tufano in the region soon as part of the lineup on the Diamond Ring and Devil Tour. That's coming to San Bernardino August 20th with the Classics 4, Mitch Ryder, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, and The Circle. More on the concert at affordablemusicproductions.com. And with that, we wrap up another edition of KVC Arts. Thanks again to Dennis Tufano, as well as to Nathan Gothels of Affordable Music Productions for getting me in touch with Dennis. Here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, Paulina Garcia, and Sharina Wad. Many past KVCRs can be found through iTunes, NPR One, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most past shows are at kvcrnews.org slash arts. Music beds and themes heard on KVCRs composed and performed by Sean Longstreet, so thanks to Sean as well. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support.